the end game is when our children don't have to learn in school that Christopher Columbus, you know, discovered America. The end game is also that, you know, we don't have to learn that before colonialism, we were nobody, right? Maybe that is it. I don't know. I'm interested in the process. I'm not interested in the end game. But the end game might be that. Welcome to Creativity Pioneers, a podcast by the Moleskine Foundation that aims to spark dialogues and reflections on how creativity is understood and talked about, showing us its use for positive personal and social transformation. I'm your host, Adam Asane, Moleskine Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. Today, I had the great pleasure to converse with Bonaventure Saw Beijing de Kung, our curator, biotechnologist, music expert, professor in curatorial studies and sound art, director of the Rancor de Bamako of Biennale of Photography, founder of the iconic Savvy Contemporary Space in Berlin, and just appointed director of Haus der Kultur and der Welt in Berlin in 2023. In October 2020, Bonaventure was awarded the Order of Merit of Berlin in recognition of the work Savvy Contemporary has been doing over the past decade, a pioneering space of criticality, reflection, and artistic production. Bonaventure is truly one of the most brilliant polyedric minds of our time. In this spontaneous and rich conversation, Bonaventure will take us on a thought-provoking journey. It was hard to find three key words to summarize this exchange, but among many, we are proposing communion, decanonization, and creative process. Enjoy. And the first thing that I would like to ask you is, how are you doing? I would say I'm good, man. I'm good, you know. Um, obviously, it's been a tough year and a half. Uh, we've lost people, uh, dear ones. Um, we, we've gone through a very dire time, very precarious time, health-wise, but also economically. But we're good, you know, we, we're really, we're looking ahead and we're pushing hard, you know, so just. I wanted to ask you, you know, because the typical narrative in the Western world of a curator, to a certain extent, that's, that's the top of the ego scale pyramid. You know, you, you have somebody who's a curator who, funny enough, technically doesn't even create anything, almost as a conductor, you know, and uh, something that is always interesting to think about is the conductor is the, is the biggest guy, is the guy with the biggest pay, and yet he produces zero sound. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and so in a similar way, the curator has this type of aura often in the Western world. And yet you have brought to life or you created communities and even beyond communities, I would say communion, mm. people that come together to, to bring their own. Mm-hmm. So how does that 
came about? What's what's the thought behind it? No, you you've you've touched upon a few very important things, Dama, my brother. Look. I think we can't do this thing without a community. First of all, as you said, it's about creating one, you know. The multiple communities out there, you know, some people struggle to integrate within community. I would say that has been a core part of our artistic practice, you know, creating moments of communion, as you say, you know, where we can be together, break bread together, dance together, think together, you know, uh, just be together, you know, for, for lack of a better way of describing it. So that is a fundamental part. So that myth of the lonesome cowboy, that capitalist idea of the individual, you know, has failed us, you know. I remember, you know, been going to Venice for the past 16 or 18 years now, and whenever you go there, most of the time you see uh, the name of one fellow, you know, curated by, you know. And it always baffled me how these people do this, you know. And what came out, you know, from that, from being baffled is just the fact that they've not been honest enough, you know, because the many other people out there doing the work, and of course, the media always tries to put one figure there and so on and so forth. But we must work against that. You know, we must work against uh, that because the labor of these people has to be uh, commended as well. You know, and these people um, really put, uh, you know, sweat and blood and energy together to make these things happen. But... As much as I like the, the conductor, I'm more interested in something else. You know, the idea of conduction, which is an idea that was brought up by Butch Morris, you know, the African-American composer and conductor, which kind of unified the idea of, you know, uh, instantaneous composing and conducting. So you, you, you are there, you are creating while instructing others to create with you. So it's a kind of a jam. It's, uh, it, it, it needs that incredible listening capacity at the same time, an incredible capacity to, um, to do something instantaneously. So that, that is it. But for that, you need people to listen to you and you need to listen to others. So it's a collective listening process, you know. And I think that is what actually justifies or, actually, you know, accentuates, you know, good bands, for example, you know, when they can listen to each other, when they can, you know, can jam well with each other. So um, just a long path to say that, Without the people that make savvy, savvy wouldn't be possible. You know, it's not about the artistic directors. It's not about you know, you know. It's the the the, the multiplicity of voices, the the plurivocality of a space. You know, of experiences, of uh, epistemologies that that these people bring with them. It's a multiplicity of you know 
you know, experiences that they bring from the different geographies that they come from. So, so together we try to imagine, you know, a space, you know, so, so really it's about creating those spaces, you know, spaces of thought, spaces of reflection, spaces of deliberation, you know, uh, spaces in which we can, we, can, we can disagree, in which we can dismantle things, in which we can build things, you know, spaces in which we can, we can, co we can commune, you know, um, spaces in which we can dream, you know, spaces in which we can just look at each other, listen to each other and acknowledge each other's presence. That's what it's about. So you were born in Cameroon, you've been there, you've been around the world, you've been to Germany to study. Where everything that you just described, where that original impulse came from? There are no real, I mean, recently there have been a few, you know, uh, art schools, you know, but there's no school for curating in Cameroon. Uh, still, you have people like Simon Jami, you have people like Koyo Kuo, you know, you have younger generations like old Christel Mba that are coming up and doing incredible work, you know. So I don't know any particular school for publishing, you know, but you have people like Tone Ejabe, you know, and Chimurenga, you know, Zekashu uh, McVeban, and so on and so forth, you know. Now, this, I, I don't, this, I never heard of a school of music, you know, still you have people like Alaji Toure, you had people like Manu Dibango, you know, have uh, uh, Richard Bona, you have all these people, you know, the, the, the whole Bikutsi club and then the, the Makosa and then, you know, the, the, now the young generation of people playing Bole, you know, these guys no, never went to any kind of a formal school of doing what they do. Now, so the question of where this comes from, we can't possibly answer. But what we know is that not only in Cameroon, but in other parts of the African world, we've been so mightily blessed uh, by incredible knowledge and incredible capacities of doing what we do, even in the most dire of conditions, you know. I cannot pinpoint where this comes from, but what I know is that, again, in that spirit of collectivity, that we see each other, we support each other, sometimes in not so very clear, direct, linear ways, but it's there. But we've built supporting structures, you know. So I, I remember visiting Okui, and I've said this in other interviews, you know, a few weeks before he passed. And he said something that stayed with me. And it was something to the lines of, I have contributed my part. I've put my, my own share in this fund, something like that. All we are doing is just contributing our own small part to this larger fund, you know, and some other people will pick up later and continue, you know. Fact is I cannot do what I'm doing today without the, the, the work that somebody like Simon Jami put. We cannot do what we do today without the work that people like uh, Koyo, like Ngane, from different parts of the continent. So again, thinking about a tradition, we come from a 
people that acknowledge those who came before them. You know, so we're building upon something. So where does it actually come from? It was placed there before we ever came. So in a way, you feel that you are part of something bigger. Definitely. We are all part of something much larger than we are. You know, there is something Fred Morton once said in an interview where he said um, if, if it felt ridiculous for him to put his name as an author of his books, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, paraphrasing, right? Uh, because he said, because of a lot of the things that he's writing about are so much the things that the art ensemble of Chicago were playing in their music, the things that poets have been talking about. So it's it's something similar, you know. A lot of the things I'm working on, you know, look at the project we're, we're working on for next year to commemorate 50 years of Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, you know, which was you know, this seminal book that was written in 1972, a groundbreaking critique of the uh, concept of development or underdevelopment, you know. So in which uh, Walter Rodney lays bare the, 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 how these this demarcations of development and underdevelopment are, you know, a continuation of the colonial enterprise, you know, and how, you know, the idea of you being underdeveloped is actually to keep you in that territory and never would permit you to become developed, you know. So, so we're working towards that. Now, what is interesting is that my own father gave me this book when I was 14 years old, and I have these notes inside, you know, of him writing, acknowledging some of the things, questioning some of them, you know, and so so we're building on a lot, you know, we, we're a small part of a larger thing. You know, the way you describe it, it, it feels, I would say, a spiritual journey. There's almost like um, a magical dimension in, in what you describe. At the same time, you are a scientist. Mm. Mm. You know, you are a son of Illuminism. Mm. <laughs> How does these two things coexist? How you can interpret and be in the language that allow you to have those two thoughts and approaches together? Mm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a good one. You know, I don't think it's, there's anything, you know, magical about it. Maybe spiritual? Definitely, because we, we exist in spiritual spaces, right? Um, it's, it's not this kind of spirituality that has, you know, you know, that should be called certain names, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, believing in unions, in interchanges, you know, between bodies is about energies, right? And if it's about energies, then it's not so far away from the sciences, right? So if 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 we say within, and now I'm talking about things that I don't really know, huh? so mind you. So if they say that within the spiritual realm, uh, you know, when uh, that you interchange energies, that when you pass the physical body goes, but the rest, you know, transforms into something else, you know, that's not very different than the laws of thermodynamics, you know, 
which states that, you know, energy never dies, it transforms from one state to another, you know. So if you rub your hand, you know, this mechanic energy transforms to thermal, transforms to thermal energy. So it doesn't really get lost, you know, it transforms, you know, maybe it's a bit dissipated, but there's something happening there, you know, that transformation. So I, I think it is actually uh, this, this kind of separations that uh, people want to, to put in place. I mean, speaking of just a few hundreds of years back, you know, everywhere in the world, you know, uh, uh, you would understand a healer, a scientist, as a spiritual being as well. You know, I'm just thinking about, you know, uh, my my Adaren's uh, film, you know, uh, Divine Horsemen, the Living Gods of Haiti, you know, which was done in, from 1947 to 1951. And I'm thinking of, you know, there's a point in the film where uh, the narrator talks about these people that lead the processions, that lead the activities, you know, says... They are spiritual beings, but they're also healers, you know. So these things always go hand in hand, you know. I'm not any of those, but I'm, I'm saying that they're not so far away from each other. It is true, I was trained as a, as a, as a scientist, and I, I, I do think as one, uh, but we acknowledge the fact that Whenever you get into a space, and this is what uh, Joshua Diagbo once told me, you know, that whenever he gets into the space, he tries to, 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 to say hello, to, to, to acknowledge the presence of those that came before him that still inhabit the space, right? It's actually very close to sciences, right? So your presence is felt somewhere. You leave something behind. I want to go back to something that you said before, um, where you were acknowledging the people that came before you, that came before us. And the fact that if you think about Cameroon, there is no school of curating. There's no real publishing school or, or anything like that. And while you were saying this, I was thinking about some of, again, some of our older brothers and sisters. And, and you know, I was thinking about people like you mentioned, Simon Jami, who's technically, he's a lawyer. And it came to mind something that happened to me recently. I was in Catania uh, a few days ago and, uh, and I watched this concert of this uh, uh, jazz Italian performer. His name is Gianni Jebia. And during the, the interview before the, before the, the performance, Gianni said that he comes from an era that is a pre-pedagogical era. He didn't have a school to go and study how to, you know, uh, how to be a jazz man, how to be a musician, how to play the trumpet. You know, he had no clue. It was this idea of just being out there, be moved by something, by passion, being part of something bigger than you, and then start solving problem in this idea of performativity and in this idea of expression as self-expression. And, you know, this was a little bit of a shock for me or a little bit of a point of reflection because technically I run a foundation 
that is about education, <laughs> that is about the next generation. And, and he was referring about the fact that now when we look at the internet or the, everything is, is there, is a, there is a toolkit for everything or there is a course for everything. There's a how-to for everything. doesn't matter what you need to do in your life. You have to go online and you just check at how to do things. But his provocation was, well, that might have created a generation of mediocre musicians. Mm, okay. I, 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 hear, I hear where he's coming from and he's right to a certain degree, you know, but um, we need to, to open that space of pedagogy you know, um, to, it's not as if there were not, we didn't have such spaces. We obviously had such spaces, you know, spaces of learning of different kinds, you know. Somebody who talks brief, brilliantly about these things um, is uh, Amadou Ambatiba, when he writes about the different groups, you know, in which people grow up, you know, in this seven year cycle, you know, the people of your age group with whom you're initiated together, you're circumcised together, you know, you get into different initiations of life and those spaces of initiation become incredible spaces of learning or school, schooling of all, all different kinds. So it's, we've always had these spaces now the problem then becomes um, uh, an incredible rupture in our understanding of what education is, you know, which has to do with an imposition of a certain format of education, you know, therefore a certain kind of curriculum, you know, that emphasizes certain things and de-emphasizes others. So the things that are relevant for you to become a clerk within a system of the colonial enterprise are emphasized, you know, or for you to become a medical doctor and so on and so forth. But being a medical doctor, not in the way that you will cure people the way people have been cured in your geography since time immemorial, but to cure people with a kind of a more Western, you know, knowledge system. So that is where the rupture actually happens, you know. So I don't really think the issue is toolkits. The question is toolkit for what, right? I am all for toolkits, but for what? That is the question. Now, another thing is uh, <laughs> uh, the why. Why do we do certain things? Why do we go to school? Why do you actually want to become an engineer and in, or a lawyer? In most of the cases, people will tell you because my parents told me that, you know. So where is the passion? Where is your own agency, you know? So these are things that we actually need to question the whole educational system because we have to ask people, what do you actually want to do and why, you know? So that is it. Those are the things that, in my opinion, really matter. So... When we get there, we notice that 
there's a lot of knowledge out there, be it in the way of playing music and why you play music, you know, going beyond just entertainment, but a music that also has a responsibility, one, to document, right, to archive something, two, to disseminate knowledge, so to pass on information, three, to serve as a, as a, a catalyst or, or a, a lubricant or an accompaniment within a performative gesture, therefore rituals. And then four, of course, entertainment is not taken out, joy, which is very important, you know. So all these things, but if you leave out the rest of the things and you focus only on entertainment, then something is wrong, right? So those are things that we need to take into consideration. You know, so I hear what uh, he was saying, but I, in my opinion, I think it's, it's multifaceted. So the point is, and that to me is, is connected to part there is that you, that you describe is about, in this case, the use of language. We take a concept like pedagogy that is by definition connected to structures and powers. And we start um, deconstructing it, not for the sake of deconstructing it, but deconstructing it for the sake of a practical understanding of the why behind something. You propose to us a way to rethink about institutions and in the way institution plays a role. Now, within this, I would love to, to, to hear something on you on that, but I also have a provocation here and a mm -hmm. question. You move from being an independent, young curator, creating independent space uh, in Berlin, that it was a very, in, you know, independent-like city and space, uh, you know, creating a very niche situation where everything was upon you and your people to now become part of institutions, you know, from Documenta to your latest role. And so the question of provocation is, is the canon an element of, or a method of methodology? It's a method of approach. Or is the canon intrinsically connected with powers and institutionalization? Okay. Now, Adama, you've touched on so many things. Let's stick one by one. I hope I don't forget something. So the, the essay you mentioned is about decanonization. In which I was thinking about processes of making canons, the canon as a power tool, the way we are made to think that what we need to do is to get into the canon, uh, where the canon in, in itself is an exclusive and a violent space for certain people. Um, so I was thinking about that. Now, the proposal of decanonization is a proposal for porosity or for the dismantling of that canon as a whole. Why do we need canons? Who does it benefit? And so on and so forth. So it was a process of thinking about that. Uh, that plays a very important role in, in pedagogy and because you mentioned that, by the way, in the etymology of, 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 of pedagogy, you know, we have the pedos, you know, the boy, the child, 
and the agogos, you know, the leader. So it's about leading somebody, leading a young person. That is what it is at the core. Now, in terms of pedagogy, what we've seen is that a certain canon is imposed. So this kind of universalist idea of knowledge, you know, uh, 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 Louis Gordon talks about the fact that, uh, you, that we use the word knowledge in singular as a singular term. You know, in English, if you say knowledge, is it's wrong because the language doesn't accept the fact that it's a multiplicity of knowledges. So that in itself is the problem. So how do we start by acknowledging the fact that there are many knowledges, even if the language we're speaking in doesn't accept it, right? So if we're thinking of pedagogy, say in literature, what do we study in school actually? What do the kids read in, in, in school? You know, Are we still reading William Shakespeare? Nothing against Shakespeare, but are we also reading Ngugi Wachongo? Are we also reading Chinua Achebe? Are we also reading uh, Ata uh, Amaido? And so on and so forth, you know? So this is it. So how do we, not because we want to put Amata Aido into a, in the form of canon, but that we're saying that we need to create a porous space in which we can bring in people and take some others out. You know, or we say we don't need to create a canon, we just need to create, um, you know, you know, spaces in which we put the spotlight on this person now, tomorrow we put the spotlight on another, on another person, depending on what is at stake, you know. So um, decanonization was that effort. Now, I don't think it stops one from working within different spaces, you know. So uh, Simon Jami would say he's a sniper that he's called somewhere and he goes and does what he has to do. It's not my thing. I go to do what I have to do, but those spaces are as much mine. The fact that we create uh, uh, an independent space doesn't mean that we shouldn't accommodate other spaces, you know. I don't think we need to create, you know, notions of ghettos, you know, where you just stay there and you know, we should be, we are, multi, we are multiple beings, you know, that's why uh, uh, the, 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 the subject for this upcoming Bamako Biennial, which we're doing is on multiplicity of beings and becomings, you know, because we are multiple beings and we are constantly in the process of becoming, you know, so we could accommodate the independent space and we could accommodate other spaces. That's one thing. As for documenter, I go there, I sting and I go back out, you know, as for how's the culture in the belt, I go, I have, will have a five years contract, I sting, I do what I have to do there, I go back out. We shouldn't also underestimate the possibility of us it sometimes it's very, very, very easy to create a kind of a niche and you're making noise within that niche. Sometimes it's very easy. But the question is, I'm not interested in changing institutions. The institutions can continue the way they are when I leave. Let them do whatever they want. But for the time I'm there, I'm inviting my people, you understand? Make it clear that if you're inviting me and you think you're inviting an individual, you're actually inviting a whole tribe. 
So when we come, we come large. We take up the space, we do what we have to do. We put in place, you know, the notions of pedagogy that we think. We want to read, you know, Z.D. Smith, we read Z.D. Smith. We want to, to read Bernard Fonlon, we read Bernard Fonlon. We want to read uh, the poetry of Lee Maracle, we read the poetry of Lee Maracle, right? We want to invite, you know, uh, musicians from here, there, or wherever, we invite them. We invite activists, where we do that. We finally have the space and the money to do what we have to do, right? And when the time comes, we go back into our independent spaces. We, we create, we have the possibility of writing the kind of books we've always wanted to do, you know? It's very important that we don't romanticize precarity. <laughs> you know, there's nothing beautiful about being poor. Forget that, right? We have the possibility, we step into spaces, we claim the spaces, we do what we have to do, but we're always cognizant of the guerrilla tactics, not being too comfortable anywhere, never. Is there an end game here? You know, because you say, you come, we go, there is this element of, occupying spaces. You know, sometimes I think about this notion and I, and I was talking- the end, game, the end game is when our children don't have to learn in school that Christopher Columbus, you know, discovered America. The end game is also that, you know, we don't have to learn that before colonialism, we're nobody, right? Maybe that is it. I don't know. I'm interested in the process. I'm not interested in the end game. But the end game might be that, it might just be that, you know, the next generation will not have to be dealing with that, those kind of things, you know, in which, you know, uh, 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 Macron would be telling us that, you know, it's bad to do a coup d'etat in Mali, but then when uh, Idris Deby is killed, he steps on the next plane to go to Mali, to, 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 to Chad, to put in state the son of Idris Deby. Right? It doesn't work that way. Maybe that is it. Or it's at least, so in that process, we are thinking about these things, you know. We're thinking about the fact that you cannot say that Gaddafi was the most terrible person while he's giving money to Berlusconi and to Zakozi for their campaigns and so on and so forth. You know, we know that, you know. So, we, you, so maybe the idea is getting to a space where we're making people understand that we see them. You cannot tell us that 20 years ago when you got into Afghanistan, you were really going to take care of people. Now you're leaving Afghanistan in a situation which is worse than 20 years ago. I mean, you can't, you know, as Bob Mali said, you can't fool all the people all the time. We have to stand up for something. So maybe that is it, you know, standing up and walking upright and making them understand that we are seeing them and we are putting them on check. If we move into everyday space, you deal with a lot of young people, you know, we deal with a lot of young people. How do you translate some of the conversation that we had today that you share with, with us mm. into um, an everyday practice? Billy was a young Cameroonian guy, was a poet, studying art history. He was just coming in and out while we're doing this conversation, you know just like many others here. It's about sustaining the conversations with them, engaging in debates, you know, listening to everybody, not saying, oh, your opinion doesn't count. No, 
We're engaging in debate, reading together, conversing, doing, engaging in incredible storytelling. You know, Tanka Fonta, Cameroonian composer who's based in Berlin, he also pops up just, you know, anytime he just comes in, you put music and we just listen and we talk, we talk, 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 you know, and ex you know, it's that place of exchange. So how do we do that? I'm really interested in that space of the, of the fireside, that space in which you say and everybody replies where you call everybody's attention to listen to you, which the group Kasav used to do, you know, you know, they would scream, you know, in the crowd and then everybody would respond to them, you know, so it's creating those spaces of for storytelling. So we get caught up by the quotidian so much that we forget these spaces, you know, and how important they are. And these are spaces of knowledge, you know. So the question is, where do we find our knowledges? Where do we find our philosophies, you know? Do we really have to go continue? I mean, it's important. We all need to read Foucault. We need to read, you know, fair enough. But there are other spaces of knowledge, you know, the people we have to read, we have to explore the Abia magazines, we have to explore the Presence African, you know, we have to explore all these things that have been written before, but we also have to engage in those spaces of deep storytelling, you know, we have to listen to music deeply, those are spaces of knowledge, you know, where sounds tell beyond the languages. During the opening of Sunspec, we had a listening session, uh, old Christel Mba, Leo Asemota and myself, we sat and we were in a conversation and we were listening. And uh, Leo played a, a piece from a guy called Ben Simmons, you know, a piece that was composed in 1927. Ben Simmons was a Ghanaian uh, artist based in the UK in the 20s. And he produced this piece, which is a legendary piece few people know, I didn't know until recently. And it's just, you know, this guy making some, you know, some strange sounds in, in, in the form of music, you know, really interested in that, you know, what he's telling beyond language, beyond the conventional languages that we use, right? So, um, how do we explore these spaces together? So that is what we do with, you know, not only younger people, you know, but people of different generations when we get together. There's a kind of a ritual that I have whenever I come to Paris. Um, I go to Simon, generally he would call Billy and we'll be there. Sometimes just the three of us, sometimes a bit more people, it doesn't matter. Either we're at Simon's place or we're in Billy's studio and we just listen to music like really deep. And you see these guys, the glow, the glow. And it doesn't matter if the music is coming from Cameroon or from Jamaica or from wherever, you know, sometimes they pull out poetry and they read and, you know, and then you they stand up and they will dance, you know. You don't see them acting like that in other places. You know, but there's that deep space. It's a spaces of intimacy, you know, in which, you know, knowledge is passed. And I tell you, my brother, there's so much I've learned by being in those spaces, you know. 
That is it. Or when we are in Dakar, you know, we're at Koyo's place, you know, just talking. We've been there, you know, dancing, talking to each other, debating deeply, you know. So that is it. I'm smiling all the time because I'm very moved by what you said because this is part of my life. Almost everything I know comes from there. And also everything that I know that I don't know comes mm. from there. <laughs> and I think you raise a, an incredible point that, I, that sometimes I take for granted that is really about being present, listen, allow yourself to be in that space, understanding the importance of being in that space and seeing knowledge beyond the spaces where it is canonized or they force you to think that that is the moment that you're learning. And so I see that and I'm, and I'm very glad that we had, we take this moment of this, of this conversation, this podcast to, to acknowledge them, to acknowledge all our older sister. Yes. Exactly. Let me just add to that, you know, the multiple forms of presence, you know, mm. that it is the presence of those that are alive with the presence of those that are also not alive, you know. I remember being in Brazil once, you know, when they had killed uh, Mariela Franco, you know, and there were these demonstrations on the streets, you know, and whenever they would call her name, everybody would respond, Presenci, you know, and there was something incredibly powerful about her presence, you know, her omnipresence, because everybody could feel her, you know, she was even more present than she was when she was alive, you know. So we acknowledge the presence of those in those spaces that we cannot see or cannot feel, cannot touch. You share with me and with us the importance of those spaces and of those people with whom you have, as we've taken a, a word that we used at the beginning, moments of communion and, and moments of knowledge. I know in Savi you do it, you know, also the other way around. You now are, are also one of the people who are hosting people. And, um, and I think that's another moment of, of nurture and, and of learning. Maybe can you tell me something about the new voices, the younger voices, the younger movement that are happening around the world now and that somehow are in conversation with you and that you would like to somehow acknowledge or... There are many people, you know, many people doing, you know, quite some incredible work. I'm thinking here of uh, Tandazani Lamani, who is a desire smoker. I'm thinking of uh, Marie-Hélène Pereira in, in Dakar. I'm thinking of old Christelle Mba. I'm thinking of Chantal Edi and Zachary in the forest in, in Douala. I'm thinking of, you know, uh, you know, people in, 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 in Brazil, you know, in, in, in Hong Kong and different places, you know. So there are quite a few people that, you know, we've been fortunate to, to, to call co-travelers on this journey, you know. I don't really know if we're the host. We do things together maybe in conventional senses, we host them, but they are co-travelers with us, you know. 
And it's very important that we acknowledge their presence, even though they're younger and so on, because we need them by our sides. It's important for you to turn left and right and know that you have your people with you. You know, so uh, those are a few I can mention, you know, but there are many in, in Morocco, in different parts of the world. Yeah, so, How did your capacity, your creative process, creativity, the way, you know, you, you think about yourself and you think about knowledge and you're able to create with that, again, to encompass this idea of creative process, helped you if such, or what role did it have in going through this, this past year? You know, uh, James Baldwin wrote a, a, a powerful paper in 1962 called On the Creative Process, which I think you, you must have, you know, studied and worked with, with many others, you know, there's something he says there, and if you don't mind, I will read, read it out. And he says, the artist is distinguished from all other responsible actors in society, the politicians, legislators, educators, and scientists, by the fact that he is his own test tube, his own laboratory, working according to very rigorous rules. However unstated this may be, and cannot allow any consideration to supersede his responsibility to reveal all that he can possibly discover concerning the mystery of the human being. Society must accept some things as real, but he must always know that visible reality hides a deeper one and that all our action and achievement rest on things unseen. So this is, just a short part of a, of a bigger essay. And uh, basically in this year and a half of the pandemic, of being in a very dire time, you know, it has been about thinking of those things that we do not see, thinking of the several realities out there thinking about the, the things that politicians might not be able to afford to think of, that while scientists are actually thinking of just taking off a virus, we must think of other things, you know, thinking about ways of caring, you know, besides just going out on the balcony and heating pots, you know, for care workers, you know, thinking about, you know, much deeper things in life, but also taking the time, you know, to create, you know, in this, in this year and a half, I've spent time writing, spent time being with the children, uh, spent time, unfortunately, mourning, you know, so, so much has happened in this short time. And, uh, you know, it would be a lie if I said it was an easy time. It wasn't, but we don't have the luxury to sit there and lament. So we stand up and we move on and we continue to do the things that we have to do. As my dear friend Leo Asimota says, you know, to do the things we are tasked, tasked, tasked with the things we have the responsibility to do. It's a larger task 
you know, so we have to do those things sometimes that are bigger than us most of the times. Brother, thank you very much for sharing this. As we say in Cameroon, on an ensemble. See how we say it. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskin Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.